The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Scots scotched. With the last hope of a new independence referendum blocked by the UK Supreme Court, is Scotland effectively an unwilling colony of Westminster? SNP electoral success suggests the electorate there backs what the party ultimately stands for, Scottish independence. And Nicola Sturgeon says she's going to test that by making the next election into a referendum. Back us to back independence. So what happens now? Could the judges in London have provoked enough anger and resentment to bolster Sturgeon's case? Or is this the death knell for the SNP project? Could a future Labour government have to do a deal with the SNP to get into government and be forced to give Scots another vote? And would independence in the near future, with the current economic and geopolitical turbulence, be a disaster for both the UK and Scotland? That's our subject today. The Y Curve. So, I mean, there is the question, isn't there, for, for Scotland? I mean, is it big enough? To go on its own. I mean, there are small, well, there are smaller countries within Europe, for example, uh, that are you know, like I look at New Zealand, for example, as a successful New economy, Zealand, getting yes. by with only four and a half million people in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there's lots of ways you can do it. There are lots of tiny countries in various forms of relationships with other countries. I mean, Monaco. I mean, all kinds of places. Mm. San Marino. Uh, I mean, Scotland is bigger than that. And I mean, it does have. I mean, I've gone into this in a bit with with people linked to the SNP who've worked out the economics of it. Now, you when can, you say you've gone into this, what you You've done, well, I've, you've I've done research. People. Oh, right. I've interviewed I thought you've done some research well, for a second there, Roger. Kind. I've interviewed people who, are, who sort of evolve with the whole SNP case for independence. And they, for, to me, at least, they make a reasonably convincing case mm. that it could function economically. Obviously, they'd want to join in with Europe. Yeah. But I suppose the point in all this is, well, it's twofold. It's, is there any chance they are going to get any independence in the near future? Because, frankly, the constitutional route seems to be blocked. Mm. And if they did, would they survive? Yeah. And I, I think the first one is... Probably it's going to be a very long haul to get there. And the second one is actually, yes, it could work, but would it be to the advantage of Scottish people? I'd have doubts. And, you know, they, they obviously hope that they would become part of the EU, but that is not going to be a rapid process because they would need to show that they can exist yeah. as a functioning economy all by themselves before the EU would entertain that idea. They're not, yeah. You know, and that could, that's going to take time, and, and decades. There's, there's political issues within. I mean, there's a family, what, what they call the Catalonia issue, which is Spain hmm. would be very unhappy at the yeah. idea of a breakaway nation yeah. joining Europe because of the precedent it might set. I'm not, again, convinced that's wholly true. I think, to be honest, if you had a, a country like Scotland that wanted to be part of the EU... Hmm. I don't think Europe will really end say that. This idea as well that they keep the pound, I think, is a mistake. And maybe perhaps we can flesh this out a little mm. bit today. But, I mean, if they are going to be an independent country, they have to have their own sovereign currency. Otherwise, they are going to be – it's going to be a bit like the rest of Europe is paying for the success of Germany. Mm. You know, it's a bit like being tied to the euro. They want the ability to have their own currency so that prices can be cheaper, so they can export and, you know, so that businesses move over the Scottish border yeah. because of the currency. Exchange rate, and you can't have an EU member hmm. using the currency of a non-EU non member. Know, exactly. Do you know, I've got a issues. funny story on this before we talk to today's guest. Years and years ago, I used to work in uh, in the travel industry. I used to work for the British Tourist Authority. Yeah, he did a tremendous job. I mean, just, fun, just look. Fun, look how many tourists there are. It's all down to me. And we would um, we had some uh, travel agents and some journalists coming over from New York, uh, and it was when Glasgow was the uh, city of culture. And uh, just just don't. Just don't. <laughs> I mean, you have no idea how many listeners are turning off. I know right, right now. now. That's I'm surprised they've lasted this long. To be honest with you, how many weeks have we been going now? But they, anyway, we, we were there. They flew into Scotland, and uh, they'd never been to Scotland or never been to Britain before. 
So we're going to start in Scotland, do Glasgow, and then we're going to go down to London. And uh, they all, because they all arrived in Scotland, they all had Scottish pound notes, you know, issued by yes. the Bank of Scotland. They do still exist. Uh, they do still exist. And I uh, and, and I said, well, we're going to get the train down to London now. So you need to go into the bank and cha- and say you need to change that into English pound You're notes. You're a bad man. Uh, even worse, I said, and these Scots, I tell you what, they're going to tell you that it's just that you don't need to. They'll say it's legal tender. Don't believe them. The next thing they'll try is they'll say it's a one-to-one exchange rate. I said, if you're not getting pound twenty. English money per Scottish pound. But the, but the listeners, reason, if you want to know where the whole drive towards independence came from, it was that it was moment. That, it was that it moment. Was exactly. that moment. But actually, I mean, the reason I made that point is actually it should be the other way around. The Scot- Scotland needs its own pound for that pound to be weaker uh, against the, the the UK pound, and then they will have a, a unique competitive advantage, mm-hmm. which will give them some strength. And and that, that is part of the problem in the UK generally. We have a very dominant capital city which uh, has its own cost of living and its own the currency is yeah. based on the strength of that southeastern corner of the UK so it's not just an issue for Scotland but if Scotland went on its own it would have an, an opportunity to but, break through from that but there's a lot more than just the economics of it I mean mm. the fact is uh, it's hard to see once Scotland goes how the rest copes as well if, if yeah. indeed that happens but anyway yeah. we can discuss we, by the way that same group of people when yeah. we were on the train you would have thought they'd learnt they all got off the train at Berwick-upon-Tweed to ask where the passport office was <laughs> so <laughs> like, the gullible or not I think anyway. we, I think we've uncovered the source of most of the UK's recent troubles why I, had to, move on, why I had to move on from the let's travel let's talk industry. to someone who really knows all about this and what's going to happen he joins us now so yeah we're going to be we're joined now by Michael Keating he's professor of Scottish politics at the University of Aberdeen he's also a fellow of uh, the Centre for Constitutional Change at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, Michael, welcome to the to the podcast. Look, I um, I was looking you up on Wikipedia. Uh, it says you hold, uh, I don't know if, if Wikipedia can be believed, it says you, you hold passports for the UK, Ireland and Canada. I mean, talk about hedging your bets. Just So just how Scottish are you, first of all? Well, I had a Scottish mother and an Irish father. I was brought up in the north of England. I was educated in an Irish Catholic school. Oh, and wow. I came to live in Scotland 50 years ago. Well, that, so, that sounds pretty uh, Scottish to me. There are many ways of being Scottish and many ways of being British. <laughs> well, 50 <laughs> years is just enough, probably, isn't it, to I be accepted so. as being let, Scottish. Let, let, let's take it on from where we are then, Michael, because obviously the, the, the path to a new referendum, Indyref 2, has been blocked, legally speaking. How do you see the SNP proceeding. We know they're going to say the next election is going to be an effective referendum, but is there an obvious way forward for them to achieve what they want to achieve now? Well, there isn't. And the problem is not with the SNP so much as with the British constitution. We're in a very strange position here that successive British governments have recognised that Scotland has the right to self-determination. I've got a quote from Margaret Thatcher herself saying, We wouldn't say no, no English MP could say no to Scots voted for independence. That seems to have been established, but it's nowhere written down in the constitution. But then there's no way to exercise this, right? That's the problem. And Cameron and Salmon managed to short circuit that problem back in 2012 when they agreed on the Edinburgh uh, Agreement, which simply said, we'll give it a one-off go in 2014, you can have a referendum. That didn't solve the principle, it just solved the problem. At the moment, that is the problem, and it's not going to go away. And we need to find a way around that. So Sturgeon has tried to find a way around that by saying we'll have a quasi-referendum. Frankly, that's not terribly convincing. And the UK government says, well, now is not the time. So 
So why, why is that not convincing, though? If she, if she managed to uh, get an even stronger lead, I mean, couldn't she point to say, I mean, I, I mean, it wouldn't automatically mean that she can hold another referendum, but she'd be in a better position, wouldn't she, to say to, the, to, say to Westminster, look, you know, effectively, the people of Scotland have, have spoken because this is what we campaigned on. Yeah, I mean, if she gets more than a lot more than 50% of the vote and says that is my mandate, they can't gainsay that, can they? Well, there's no prospect really of getting a lot more than 50% of the vote. Right. Uh, she may get a majority... But it's not like Norway back in the early 20th century when they could get about 90% for the proposition. It's not like that. And the unionists know that Scotland is divided on this question 50-50. And indeed, even if mm. 51% in a referendum, that doesn't really resolve the question. Yes, it, it gives an answer to the question. It doesn't resolve the question that, that Scotland is divided on this issue. Yeah. Well, like like we all were over Brexit. And of course, a lot of it relates to Brexit, doesn't it? Because, I mean, back in 2014, when the, uh, the, the, the campaign for saying no to independence was, you know, that themed around better together. And a big chunk of that was, you know, you, if you want to stay in Europe, then uh, you're better as part of the UK. So is there some I'd imagine there's quite a bit of animosity from those people who are wanting. I mean, the, the Scots people I've spoken to who are wanting to leave. Almost all of them are saying it's because we want to be part of Europe because we were duped over this, you know, staying together uh, campaign. That, that's a very important question. It is true that in 2014, both sides said we'll stay in the European Union. Indeed, the no side said the only way to stay in the European Union is to vote no to independence. I think they were wrong on that, but that's what they were saying. And then, lo and behold, a couple of years later, England votes to come out. Scotland votes by a large majority to stay in. And the SNP says that gives them the grounds, the justification for having another referendum. What's also happened since then is a shift of opinion about Europe and independence, because in 2016, Scots voted for independence, but it wasn't the nationalists who voted for independence. Both nationalists and unionists voted, sorry, to, to remain in the EU. What's happened since then is that a number of people who voted against independence but voted for remain in the EU referendum, now have moved into the independence camp. Mm. Uh, a few people have moved the other direction, uh, but that is consolidated support. So the latest survey that we've got uh, shows that there's a very close association now between wanting to go back into Europe and being in favour of independence. Uh, so it's a, it's a much stronger vote. It's, not very, it's, it's gone up from 45 to 50%, which may not sound much, but it's much more homogeneous Vote. And that is really driving a lot of the demand for independence. Right. And is, could that continue, though? I mean, from 45 to 50 in a, you know, in a, in a small uh, number of years, could we find that as the antagonism mounts, and I suspect it will, um, that, that that's going to you know, move, move higher? Yeah, Michael, also the fact that it was judges, I mean, OK, they're judges for the whole of the UK, but sitting in Westminster appearing to hand yeah. down something which the SNP characterises as an example of colonisation, an unwilling colony, if you like. Another institution based in, uh, in London. Yeah, could, could that in and of itself maybe push the numbers up? Well, the SNP has never described Scotland as a colony. Uh, some people on the left have that argument, but they're very careful not to use that argument because it's just, it's just implausible. And we know that the Scots were amongst the greatest imperialists in British history, and they know mm. that as well. Yeah, it gets a bit embarrassing, uh, doesn't no, it? Nor no have they chosen to have a go at the judges. They're putting all the blame on the UK government. 
but will, 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 will the support go up beyond 50%? Well, the next 5% is going to be a lot more difficult than the previous 5%, because again, all the survey evidence that we have shows that most people have pretty fixed positions on this now. There's a group of people who are strongly in favor of independence and strongly in favor of Europe. Uh, there's a smaller group who are strongly pro-Brexit and against independence. They vote almost entirely for the Conservatives. And the ground to play on, the middle ground there, uh, has, has shrunk. It is there, uh, but it's not very substantial. But what so about the age issue, Michael, in this? Because younger people... Uh, generally, it seems, from certainly from evidence I've seen, are more in favour of, of independence. And obviously, they are the coming generation. In fact, I think the SNP now, I think it's legal to vote over 16 in Scotland, so uh, in, in regional elections, at least. So is this an age thing that's coming through that could change all that? Yeah, yeah. We, we don't know man about the 16-year-olds. The evidence we had from the last referendum was that younger people certainly voted predominantly for independence, but perhaps not the 16-year-olds, but maybe because they voted a bit more like their parents. Yeah. Uh, that, that was interesting. But generally speaking, yes. And the younger, of course, are very much in favour of being in Europe. So the nationalists are hoping that the demographics is working in their favour. We don't know whether that will persist. But that's not going to solve the problem in the short term, which is that the polls are stuck at 50-50. At so of that 50%, I mean, do we have a, a handle on how much of that are those people who moved over to that side because they want EU membership? And, and I'm just wondering how realistic that hope is. And, uh, you know, is it... Is it achievable? And is it going to be good for Scotland at the end of the well, day? Well, 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 the paradox is that the... Result of the referendums means that the case for Scotland staying in the EU is stronger. The case for saying we need independence to stay in the EU is stronger. But actually, going back into the EU is made more difficult than it would have been because if Scotland is in the EU and England is outside, uh, and since we seem to be having a pretty hard Brexit coming out from the present government, mm. then there's going to be a hard border between England and Scotland. Exactly the Northern Ireland problem reproduced. And there's no evidence that the EU would be as accommodating towards Scotland as it has been to Northern Ireland trying to keep the border open there. That's yeah. a practical difficulty people are aware of. Yeah, a lot of new shipping lanes, aren't there, as everybody tries to ship goods uh, avoiding uh, England uh, yeah, from, from, and, Ireland, from Northern Ireland and from, Sco from Ireland and from Scotland. And there's the currency issue, Michael, as well. I mean, if, if and, and Nicola Sturgeon has initially talked about keeping the pound, if you had the if you had an independent Scotland inside the EU, keeping the pound, I mean, the chaos that that would make uh, in that, terms that of Europe would be very, extraordinary. Very difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it makes no sense anyway, as I was saying in the introduction, the idea, if you're a, a sovereign nation, you've got to have a sovereign currency. If you're tied to the pound, then you're going to have a, you know, the situation that we're seeing in the EU, where everyone is paying the price of a, of a strong Germany, which is uh, heavily dependent on, on, on exports, and that is sort of raising the value of the euro above uh, what is palatable for other nations. You could have exactly the same thing. If Scotland's going to be independent, Scotland would need its own currency separate to the pound. Well, that that aside from, has, been, has been shifting. The, the SNP last time said they would keep the pound sterling mm. uh, that, 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 that it's, it's dropped that now and the, the attractions okay. of the pound sterling for obvious reasons are less than they were a few years ago uh, uh, it might be a very difficult sell to say we're going to train ourselves to the pound sterling the way it's been behaving at the moment so it's a Scottish currency but some at some time with a transition curiously 
they've ruled out the euro, which would be the obvious way of resolving the problem. But they're, they're afraid to raise the issue of the euro because that's still toxic in, in British politics generally, possibly in Scotland as well. I, I think they, 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 they should have, have a go with the euro if, the, if they're going to be independent. But they've ruled that one out. So it becomes a Scottish currency. And there are questions then as to how Scotland as a very small country could manage its own currency, whether it would have the reserves to do that, or whether you would have a currency that fluctuates beyond its control. That's, what is, and, and the SNP is supposed to be addressing these problems, but it's not yet done all the homework necessary. Yeah, I mean, what are the actual, I mean, if, if we assume for a moment that there is a practical prospect of independence, in, in real terms, economically, but also constitutionally, politically, could it work? It could work, yes. There would be a cost. There would have to be some adjustments. And we want, the actor would want to know what these are. Uh, the, what would the, the currency regime be? <clears throat> what would Scotland's position be with regard to Europe? For example, would it be a member of the inner core? Would it join the euro? Uh, what obligations would it have in Europe? What kind of Europe it wants? Uh, and the questions about public expenditure as, as well, because Scotland does get a disproportionately high share of per capita spending within the UK. What would it do about public finances? Now, uh, they, 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 they could come up with answers to those, I'm sure. Uh, people may or may not be convinced by those answers, but so far we haven't got those answers. Uh, and, and people will need to be reassured because if there is a referendum campaign, People would want a degree of reassurance. The people who voted no last time were, were, were uncertain. That's a big problem. Uncertainty. Yeah, exactly. What, are you, what is it you're going to produce as well as, a, you know, what is going to keep the economy afloat? So if you look at, you know, if you say, well, OK, it's a similar sort of population size to Norway, but Norway's GDP per capita is almost twice what it is in, in, in Scotland. And Ireland, similar size, isn't far behind Norway. So, I mean, the economy would have to increase significantly if it was going to compete on 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 a level playing field and so the question well, the then becomes income in, in scotland is about the same as the rest of the uk uh, right. it, it's above most regions apart from london and the southeast so scotland yeah. is not a poor country it, it could make its own way it would be, be a marginal balance but then ireland has one model Norway has a different model depending on natural resources. Other countries have their own models. And what people will want to see is what model, what economic model Scotland would be, would be following because there are different ways of doing it as a small country. Well, what do you think would be the most successful? Does it say, well, okay, we are an energy producing nation and we are going to uh, cover our hills and our, 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 our glens with, uh, with, uh, with wind, wind farms, wind farms and, <laughs> and export all the energy down into England? What's the, what, what would the model be, do you think? Well, probably in, in energy significant renewable energy. The SNP mm. now have given up on oil uh, just at a time when the oil price is, is high again. Uh, there's, a, there's a mixed economy. There are, there, there are uh, successful sectors in economy, biosciences, high technology sectors, satellites. It's, it's, it's got a fairly balanced economy. It wouldn't be dependent on natural resources. The question is, uh, would it be able to grow fast enough to pay for the cost of its own services, or let's say the services to which it aspires, would it be able to afford uh, the kind of welfare state that they have in the Nordic countries? And would it be prepared to tax itself? Because in the countries you've cited, they have pretty high taxes. Would Scotland be yeah. prepared to have a high tax economy? It can work. It's public investment. 
high-tax countries are not necessarily economically disadvantaged, but the independence people would have to come up with a convincing story as to how that would work. But there's a greater chance that's going to happen in Scotland than there is in England, of course, isn't there? And, you know, they, I mean, and looking at those other countries, modelling yourselves on, on Norway seems like a, a logical way forward, doesn't it? But it's a, a, there is so there's, much there's, you there's, have to, so much has to yeah, be done. There's no, there's no market in Scotland for what they call the Singapore model. It's a misleading no. term. <laughs> it know doesn't, hasn't worked so far in England either, Mike. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not going to sell politically in Scotland. It would be a welfare state model, a social democratic model. And so they, they have to explain how that is going to be uh, paid for. But is there also not a risk it actually could end up being a one-party state? Because at the moment, the SNP is utterly dominant, isn't it? It's, it, well, it's, it, not, it a barely... one, it's not a one it's not a one-party state. There are five parties in the Scottish Parliament. So yeah, I know, but they're not very well represented. If you actually look at the dominance of the SNP, it's pretty dramatic uh, in comparison to, say, you know, what, what it would be in England. Um, and a, a risk that, you know, even politically, it could be a very difficult thing to manage. Well, that depends on what happens to politics after uh, in independence. It may be the SNP would continue to exist, but it may equally be the case that the SNP would, people would break away from the SNP. There would be a left wing and a right wing element of it, and that the Labour Party could well recover as, as a competitor to the SNP once the SNP no longer had the national question to, uh, to, to impel it. Uh, we could see a restructuring policy. After all, we've seen a realignment of politics in Scotland in the last generation. Why should there not be another one? Well, Michael, talking about representation. Talking about the way forward, and you mentioned Labour there. One of the thoughts that's occurred to me, and I think other people, is that if Labour come to power in the UK, uh, um, in Westminster, uh, in 2024, and most people are factoring that in at the moment, um, the possibility that they might have to do that in some kind of arrangement with the SNP to get a majority is quite real. And in that instance, maybe that is the way forward for the SNP to try and pursue their project, because in the end, that would be the sine qua known of them actually doing any kind of deal, I would imagine. That, 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 that is one possibility. Uh, uh, and it would be normal. If we had normal politics in Westminster, which we don't because we have a, a very distorting electoral system, mm. but if we had normal politics in, in Westminster, then bringing the territorial politic parties in would be normal. The, the Spanish government, the present Spanish government, does deals with the Catalan nationalists all the time and the Basque nationalists, uh, even while disagreeing them about the independence issue. But we haven't reached, reached that degree of maturity in the UK. And certainly Labour are terrifying if they did that deal with the SNP, that Conservatives would go for them in England. The difference in Spain is that both parties do deals with the nationalists. But uh, Starmer is a very cautious person, uh, and all the evidence is that when he says he's not going to do a deal with the SNP, he means it, that they would form a minority government and defy the SNP to vote them down and put the Tories back in again. So do you think uh, in that case... It's a dead duck. The idea of, of Scottish independence has it uh, is it has it seen its day for a generation? What what we've found from our surveys is the opinion appears to be polarised about sovereignty and independence. There's an independence camp and a union camp, and pretty they're pretty well entrenched, which is why we don't expect opinion to shift radically then. But if we then ask people a second question, what do you mean by independence? 
it becomes quite different because they're very flexible about the notion of independence, especially the pro-independent people. They want to share power with Europe. They're not sovereignists in the traditional sense. So we've got an irony that the electorate are still looking for some kind of third way, but the political system is not offering them that. They're offering them Scottish independence or a rather hard version of unionism plus Brexit. Uh, and that's not where the electorate are. So there's a great deal of frustration there that what the electorate want, which is new thinking, is not available. Yeah, it's paralysed. The system is effectively paralysed. And in that situation, it's actually quite dangerous in a way because there are a lot of people, as you say, who are very committed to independence, who feel that their will is being frustrated by Westminster. And that could boil up into things that, that we certainly would not desire in terms of people thinking there is no parliamentary route to what they need. Well, this is this is the danger. There's no democratic way of getting what is agreed to be a legitimate democratic aspiration becoming independent, then that's a failure of the political system there. And maybe this won't be resolved until there is a second referendum. Uh, I don't think there will be a third referendum. Uh, I think this, the next one will be decided because it'll be independence or it'll be uh, reaffirming the union. What we've seen in Quebec, for example, they had two referendums and that was enough. But maybe to clear the air, you need to have another referendum and then whatever the result, think about how you're going to get some compromise between the two sides. Do you think a, a chunk of this really is just dissatisfaction with Westminster? It's the, the system as far as... Because because in that, it's not just Scotland. Obviously, people in the north of England feel pretty much the same way, although a chunk of them did vote Tory in, yeah. the, in the Red Wall of Be, the last People election. in Northern Ireland are not exactly happy with the situation that they're getting either. So the reason I asked that was because looking at the polls, support for Scottish independence fell to 24% in 2000. 2007, which was the lowest it's been for two decades. And the reason for that was because Gordon Brown was prime minister. And now I look and I see, I think there are only two Scots in the cabinet. There's Alistair Jack, who happens to be the secretary of state for Scotland. So it'd be a bit of a problem if you didn't have a, uh, you know, someone from Scotland in that position. And then Simon Hart, who's uh, the chief whip at the moment. There's a tough job. So if there was more Scottish representation in Westminster, would the Scottish people be satisfied that they were being represented and that the system was perhaps working better? Is that the nub of the issue here? There's part of that. That was the traditional way of ruling Scotland, to have Scots in prominent positions in the, the Westminster government. It wasn't that they weren't always present, but certainly during the new Labour years. In fact, even in the 1950s, under the Conservatives, there were prominent Scots in the, the government there. So they felt represented. But I think times have moved on. Uh, and there was a very strong demand for devolution in the 1990s, culminating in the establishment of the Scottish Parliament. That necessarily meant that attention moved away from Westminster. And now the focus in politics in Scotland is very much upon Scotland. So I don't think we can go back to the old days. What is really more important is that Westminster should take Scotland and the Scottish Parliament more seriously. Uh, rather than discovering it. They discover it every few years and have a big flurry of reorganising intergovernmental relations. But devolution really affected nothing whatever at the centre. It affected everything at the periphery. But as far as Westminster is concerned, it's just a bit of a sideshow. And, and COVID made a huge difference because people suddenly became aware of where regulations changed. And that was also true of Wales. But there was a sense that, that there was a different way of doing things on the other side of the border. And what's really interesting in all this, Michael, is you've got, we mentioned Gordon Brown, and apparently 
Gordon Brown is drawing up something for Keir Starmer in the way of a of more even more de- devolution, devo max or whatever you want to call it, um, in order to try and perhaps uh, undermine the independence case. I mean that that could be. Well, a yes, way. there is a, the, the Gordon Brown Commission, which is is reporting to uh, to Starmer. They're, they're they're doing all the work. Starmer doesn't seem to be doing any work on on Scotland at, at all. <clears throat> but probably more devolution is is not going to save the union because it's been tried twice already. Uh, there have been three acts, the first one, and then two revisions. They didn't stem the rise of nationalism uh, at all. What might stem the rise of nationalism is not necessarily more powers, but greater recognition, greater change at the centre, great change that this is a union and that UK governments have got to take it seriously, whereas we've had since Brexit, half a dozen occasions in which the so-called Searle Convention has been overruled. That is, Westminster simply legislates for Scottish matters in devolved areas uh, against the will of the Scottish Parliament and, and claims, and the Supreme Court upheld this as well a few years ago, claims the right to do so whenever it wants to. That doesn't suggest a respect for the devolved institutions. And, and more of a respect, I think, more of a realisation where it's a federal kind of system, if not a federation, might be more effective. It is sort of like a half-pregnant solution, isn't it? And it's it sort of like sounds as though things are being offered just piecemeal to to try and satisfy the the independent crowd in Scotland. But and and you know, is it actually the only answer? Is it's all or nothing? So there are things like, for example. Scotland can issue its own debt if it wants to. It can issue its own bonds. It's been able to for the last uh, five or six years, but it doesn't because who's going to buy Scottish bonds, particularly if there's a... No, that's, 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 that's not the problem. It, it, it can't issue bonds. It has very limited, very limited borrowing powers. Yeah. But I mean, even even, even if they did, who's going to buy a a Scottish bond, particularly if there's a question of of independence uh, there? But if you. Local governments can issue debt, municipal governments can issue debt. I don't see why the Scottish Parliament couldn't couldn't do that. But that's that's rather a technical matter. I don't think that would necessarily. (laughs) He's good on technical matters. Um, (laughs) But no, my point was, anyway, aside aside from that, you can. All of this is things that can be offered. Uh, but it's but it, it it's not really changing the goalposts, is it? In 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 a way that's going to satisfy the. What, 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 what needs to be changed is is something at the centre, and I believe the Gordon Brown Commission are thinking about reforming the House of Lords, which is not really the main issue at all. Mm. Uh, it, it's the way that the Westminster government needs to take into account the fact that they're in a union which includes Scotland mm. and Northern but Ireland, it, but it, and indeed the regions of England. Uh, rather than just governing everything from the central place. Right, but if the, if the House of Lords was replaced by a, a Senate that had proportional representation, though, that could help particularly if that was, you know, this... So, uh, look, the Australian example, for it, it, it works exactly that way, and it's broken down state by state, and it's not... The number of uh, seats is not t- totally related to the population, so there is... Smaller states have a greater degree of representation to try and get over that centralisation on Sydney and Melbourne. So we could do the same sort of thing uh, as a- it would but, I, but I, I, I doubt if that would really, really do the trick a second chamber because the second chamber wouldn't have any real powers and if it did have powers then it would clash with the House of Commons I think more important yeah. is this House of Commons itself if we had proportional representation in the House of Commons then normally no government would get a majority well let, let me make the let me make the unionist <laughs> case in all this which is to say that actually where does all this need for independence or even devolution really come from since it's been so fluid across that border for so many 
centuries, really. Uh, people, Scottish people live here. English people live north of the border. The differences in terms of need aren't necessarily that great. Is there really, what is it that means that people want to have something different from the UK, which is a perfectly coherent uh, idea uh, as a nation and as a country? Well, we've never had a unitary nation here. Things have always been done in Scotland. And before 1999, there was a separate education system, a separate legal system, separate criminal justice system, social work, local government planning. Uh, these are all done different in Scotland. It's just they weren't responsible to a Scottish parliament. That was, that was the problem. Uh, and, and things were run from London, but in a different kind of way. So the democratic deficit there that was eventually addressed with the devolution. But the answer was really what we call devolve and forget. Westminster said, well, it's running. We don't need to pay any attention to the importance of Scotland uh, or indeed the regions of England for that matter at the centre. It's that centralised thinking in London that is really the problem there. And this is one of the most centralised, well, England is by far the most centralised country in Europe. Uh, and that English mentality also spills over to the way that the UK government thinks about the other nations of the United Kingdom as well. Right, but it isn't just other nations, is it? It's the southeast of England versus the rest of the UK. So whether we're talking the well, southwest exactly, of England or the north of England yeah, or Scotland, yeah, the same. Yeah, that's, 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 that's what I say. England is, is an over-centralised country. Yeah. Uh, itself. Uh, it's extraordinary. The, the weakness of local government in England, the strength of central England is extraordinary. So, um, so that kind of centralised thinking also uh, influences uh, English politicians when they're thinking about the union. So given all this that we've been talking about, Michael, as we reach t- towards the end of this discussion, where do you, what do you think is going to happen? If you could put a bet down and say in five, ten years' time, will Scotland be independent or will, it be, will the issue have gone away? What, what's your gut feeling on this? Well, if I had a bottle of whiskey every time I'd given that question, that would be appropriate. Mind. But yeah, we, do, we, 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 we just don't know. This deadlock could persist for a very long time. I keep on recalling the late 19th century, where for about 30 years the Irish question was just suspended. The Irish elected nationalist MPs and nobody paid them any attention until there was a hung parliament and then the Liberals had to reopen the issue. Uh, and then things un- un- unraveled. Then the First World War came along. I was going to say, it didn't, it didn't end well, all that, though, did it? No, no, I was going to say the difference is that, that, that um, for, for, for different reasons, during the First World War, violence broke out. That's not a danger. That's not going to happen in Scotland. But, but I'm comparing what happened when the peaceful constitutional nationalists were being voted in in Ireland regularly, and Westminster simply ignored them. Uh, that can last for a very, very long time, uh, and people just become more and more turned off and more and more disillusioned. And I think Scotland will turn more and more, A, into itself, and B, towards Europe, and less and less towards London. That's, 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 that's what could happen. Would this be the answer if we, if we had a situation, and this will never happen because it's just too fanciful, but we had a, a Labour government, for example, that didn't have Keir Starmer in charge that said, uh, we recognise that one of the issues that this country faces is, is too centralised to the southeast of England. So uh, we are going to uh, look at levelling up, let's, uh, but we'll let, let's do it in a realistic way and let's work with, uh, with Scotland as well so that we can ensure that there's, you know, it's not devolution for Scotland, but it's just devolution for the rest of the UK outside the the southeast. And when we've while we're achieving that, 
We'll also look at how we have freer trade with the European Union again without necessarily rejoining it. Would that, if there was that sort of sentiment taken by a political party in Westminster that was going to work with the, the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Parliament and, and Northern Ireland to say, yes, let's look at ways that this is a more evenly spread economy in practical ways rather than just the sound bites that Boris Johnson was going after uh, and then tying the EU to all of that as well. Would that be enough for Scotland? Well, it would provide a framework, provide new thinking, which these things can be worked out. Mm. Uh, certainly that kind of imaginative thinking is necessary. And if UK were get it to get closer to Europe, of course, that would make it easier for, for Scotland because the pro-European sentiment in Scotland has actually strengthened since 2016. That's the kind of thinking that might provide a way in which these questions could be managed. These questions are never going to be resolved. Uh, if you think you're going to get a final solution, then you forget about <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, they've always been there, but they can be managed in a, in a, in a more productive way. It's curious, though, isn't it? Because as a manifesto, it sounds like right now it's uh, the I, sort of thing that would absolutely romp home. I, I think it's Phil Dobby manifesto, just but to I say. But I mean, yeah, I know there we are. Maybe I should stand. Um, maybe not. But <laughs> That's true. And, and also the Labour Party needs to re-establish itself as a Scottish party. They yeah. used to mm. shout for Scotland. Yeah. But now they're terribly afraid if they do that, it'll be seen to be playing the nationalist game. Yeah. All right. So they're afraid to do it. So they, uh, they, they, they've given up uh, the symbolism of Scotland, the ideas. They've given that up to the nationalists. So it sounds like the fight hasn't been uh, lost in Scotland. Uh, if anything, the animosity could get worse based on that, that, that court ruling uh, that, we, that we had last week. And, it's, uh, and, and it, you're talking about deadlock unless we find some sort of political, palatable uh, political, political answer. And Michael will be drinking little drops of whiskey, whiskey uh, as many people ask you these <laughs> impossible questions. I will. <laughs> How many bottles of whiskey was they, did you, were you asked today? Was this a, a six-bottle of whiskey no, no. interview? We're not doing sponsorship at this point. Um, Michael, thank you so much for being with us. That was absolutely fascinating. And, uh, yes, thought-provoking, and we'll see where it all goes. But many thanks for joining us here. Okay, good to talk to you. Getting interesting to see how that all pans out, isn't it? Now, look, next mm. week, here's an interesting one, given that uh, Elon is now in charge of Twitter. Yes, fighting for it, whatever's an, left of Twitter. We, whatever you get. Well, I, you know, I suspect he, it's going to do quite well. He, he's taking a lot of flack. But if he can run a company that's had thousands of people, if he can run it with a handful of people, I don't you know. look into the background, it's all slightly based on an awful lot of... Brain. Anyway, promise. The main thing <laughs> well, is we're not going to talk about Tesla. No, we're not going to talk about Tesla. We're going to mm. talk about free speech. Yeah. Because this he, he advertised himself as being a free speech fundamentalist. He has put uh, Donald yeah. Trump back on the platform. Yeah, Donald he Trump has, has chosen not to he, well, accept he his says, offer. We Just says. yet. We'll Maybe. see, we'll see. Yeah. But also a, a lot of other fairly unsavoury elements have returned, not least because mm. uh, amongst the many sackings uh, at Twitter have been the people who are moderating a lot of this stuff. But the question is, is should you? Should, is what, he right? I mean, yeah. is there a sense that however bad opinions are, mm. should they be out there anyway because the, the court of public so opinion will are, deal with opinions them? Opinions are fine, aren't they? Mm. It's facts. So it's when you support an opinion with facts that you've just made up. Yes, that alternative is a, but, facts. Yeah, that is that is a problem. It is. Uh, and it so is. then, you, but then how do you? you but then how do you course, police that? Yeah. And and, and and given the fact that we now have so many more platforms on which to air anything and everything, is it now a point where 
the the idea, the philosophical idea of free speech has been tested to well, destruction. You, and you, you know, it's, it would be like in the olden days saying we are going to police every pub pub conversation because yes. people talk a load of rubbish in the pub. Yes, uh, and uh, they get away with it. But if you go back to the 14th century or 15th century and you get the advent of the printing press, people say, "How oh, are these terrible common people will put out their ideas on these pamphlets and they'll all end up places and influence people?" Yeah, you and know, then, there well, is that well, element. Well, to we it. did get the Daily Mail, didn't we? Yes, as a and the Reformation and other things. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, a lot to talk about. Is is this a moment where we have to consider one of the most fundamental freedoms we all think we have, which is freedom of speech, and whether it's something we can cling on to in the internet? And age? what, is, yeah, and what is the role of technology in purveying it and policing it and controlling it? And should it be controlled? There's a million and one questions around all of that, which we'll look at next we week. We will cram a million and one questions into this lovely podcast. See you then. The Why Curve.